0: I hope you found Acts chapter 11. We're continuing our journey through the book of Acts, and as we come to the beginning of Acts 11, we're really coming to the end of a story that we have been looking at for a few weeks now that started at the beginning of Acts chapter 10. It's the story of the first time that a group of Gentiles believed the gospel and received the Holy Spirit. It's a monumental moment in the life of the early church. It's a monumental moment in the history of God's salvation. Uh, We saw how uh, one Gentile in particular, a centurion named Cornelius, who lived in Caesarea, uh, received a vision telling him to send for the apostle Peter. At that same time, Peter received a vision telling him uh, to not uh, resist going with Gentiles who were going to come with him. We'll see more about that in our text. Uh, Ultimately, the Lord providentially brought Peter to Cornelius and all of his friends and family members, and Peter preached the gospel to this group of Gentiles. They repented, they placed faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles. As we come to chapter 11 of Acts, we're going to find that word about the Gentiles receiving the gospel has made its way to the other Christians in the area. And we're going to find out just exactly what the rest of these believers were going to think of the gospel going to the Gentiles. So with that, let's read Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. And if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Uh, These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Well, at the beginning of this year, I built a desk. Now, I'm not the handiest guy, but I, I thought this is something I think I could manage. Um, I, I made a, a lot of calls to Kenny Danley, I'll tell you that. But um, I, I thought, okay, I can, I can manage this. It seems somewhat straightforward. Uh, we have this alcove in our bedroom, and I was going to make a floating desk, and so I thought, okay, this is, this is pretty simple. I'm going to build a rectangle, and I'll put it in the alcove. Piece of cake, right? Well, uh, so it seemed, uh, but as I got into the alcove and measured, it turns out the back of the alcove was narrower than the front of the alcove, so okay, okay, well, uh, no big deal. Uh, instead of making a rectangle, I'm going to make a trapezoid. And that's, that's fine. It'll still fit the space. We'll, it'll be this desk. Okay, so I, I make my trapezoid. I build it. I'm gonna put it and attach it to the studs. And um, I get it in there. I'm trying to get it level. And I find that my trapezoid is a little warped. And so I get it level on one side and then I've gotta kinda, you know, angle it in and kinda hammer it down on the other side to get it level. And I'm scraping the walls and I'm trying to get it just in there. It's not quite a perfect fit. Um, and, and so, But I finally get it in there, get it level, my trapezoid is in its place. And then I had to go to make a a desktop for this frame that I had built. And so I thought, okay, well, I, I already made one trapezoid. We'll make another trapezoid to fill the space on top of this frame. But then I found that this frame wasn't quite totally flush with the wall. And so now not only was the back shorter than the front, now the left was shorter than the right. And so now I'm not even making a trapezoid anymore. I'm making like a, a rhombus or something. Anyway, so I'm, I'm cutting this, this four-sided thing that putting, I'm putting on top, and then it's still not flush with the wall, and then I've got to caulk and fill and paint, and, and when, once all was said and done, there was a desk that fit the space, but what I thought was going to be simple, you know, just here's a space, build a rectangle, fill it. Um, it, it, it seems simple, But actually getting it to conform to this space took hours, (laughs) weeks. (laughs) It took a lot of effort. It it took geometry. (laughs) It took a lot. As we come to our text today, what I want us to understand is just like I was trying to conform this desk to this space God wants to conform us to himself. He wants to take us and he wants to conform us to fit him, to conform us to himself. He wants to take our beliefs, our actions, our attitudes, our whole lives, and he wants to conform them to his truth his ways, his heart, his priorities. Like with my rectangle, we often think that we can just build a life ourselves for our own benefit, by our own standards, and it should just fit with whatever God wants. But God wants to reshape us. He wants to bend us, sand our rough edges, conform us to himself. In Acts 11, at the beginning of this chapter, we meet a very different Peter than we met at the beginning of Acts 10. We meet a Peter who had been conformed to God more at the beginning of chapter 11 than he had been at the beginning of chapter 10. Peter witnessed God's work among the Gentiles. And as he witnessed God's work among the Gentiles, God did a work in Peter. After Peter saw God's ways, he was conformed more to God's ways. So then when Peter returned to Jerusalem, this changed man is confronted by some brothers in Christ that needed some changing. These brothers needed to see what God was up to, so that they too could be conformed more to God's ways. So my burden for us this morning as we walk through Acts chapter 11 is that we would understand that God wants us to see what he is doing in Christ. That he might conform our hearts to his ways. God wants us to see what he is doing in Christ so that he might conform our hearts to his ways. Let's walk through this text. And see this truth. So after Peter preached to the Gentiles there in Caesarea, uh, verse 48 of chapter 10 uh, tells us that he remained with them for some days. And during that time, um, word of what happened in Caesarea made its way to Jerusalem before Peter did. By the time he got there, news had already gotten there first. And the news about the Gentiles was, shall we say, met with mixed reviews <laughs> Uh, We saw that in verses 2 and 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Uh Uh-oh. They were convinced Peter had broken the law of Moses. He had done what should have never been done by a, a, a circumcised person a a jew that's just a, a shorthand version of saying that these were Jewish background believers uh, they were uh the circumcision was the sign of being a part of the covenant that God had made with uh with uh, the people of Israel in the days of Moses and uh, so they were not just uh adherence to one rule of the law. They were adherents to all of it, and uh, to be with a Gentile was to be with someone who is unclean, and to eat with a Gentile as a Jew was pretty much a guarantee that you were going to make yourself unclean, Uh, because Gentiles don't follow the dietary laws of the law of Moses. Uh, There is no way that Peter could go and eat with these Gentiles and not make himself unclean by these unclean Gentiles. The problem of these Jewish background believers is they were operating with an old covenant mindset instead of in the beauty of the new covenant that Jesus had made. And so Peter responds to his brothers with a, a long explanation of what happened with these Gentiles uh, and how he was corrected of the same error that they are now committing. Uh, Look at verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Uh, In order. Uh, That's a a term that Luke actually used whenever he began his gospel. When he first wrote to Theophilus, he said, I wrote to you, or I, I found it fit to write to you an orderly account so that you might have certainty about the things that have been accomplished among us. Well, like luke is writing luke and acts in an orderly fashion peter is now giving an orderly detailed systematic account of what happened in order that his brothers might have certainty that this that happened among the gentiles was god's doing god was at work god had accomplished something among these gentiles So he tells them about the vision that he saw there on the rooftop at Cornelius' house. How heaven opened, the sheet came down, and on the sheet were all the different kinds of animals that God had created. And how then this voice from heaven tells him to rise and kill and eat from even these unclean animals. And so in verse 8, Peter gives his response, By no means, Lord for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. So he was operating with the same understanding that these from the circumcision party, these Jewish background believers were operating with. This is what he thought too. No way will I let something unclean enter my mouth. Now, already as we've talked about this story, we've said that this vision wasn't ultimately about food. It's about people. But, One of the things that I think is worth noting is that Peter should have known, uh, even though ultimately it wasn't even about food, he should have known that he was wrong even about food. He should have known better, well, first of all, he should have known better than to think that a voice from heaven was telling him to disobey God, so there's number one, but two, he should have known better than to think that there was such a thing as unclean foods anymore. Because there were a list of unclean foods according to the law of Moses, that was in the Bible, but Peter knew Jesus came to fulfill the law, that those things are no longer binding on those who are in Christ. Uh, in fact, Peter was in the room when Peter, or excuse me, when Jesus declared that there was no such thing as unclean foods. Uh, flip with me to Mark chapter seven. Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 and verse 18, Jesus is with his disciples and he says to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Then notice this. Thus he declared all foods clean. So Mark inserts himself here. He makes this little comment. Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So Peter was there. He heard Jesus say that uh, that a person can't be defiled by something that goes into their mouth. So he should have known better than to think that there was such a thing as unclean foods. And, you know, I think that these stories, Acts 10 and 11 and Mark 7, are actually even more connected than they may seem at first. Uh, Because the events of Acts 11 take place after the events of Mark 7, but the Gospel of Mark was written after the events of Acts 11. And one of the things we know from church history is that the Gospel of Mark Um, that Mark used Peter as his primary source, uh, as an apostle, for writing his gospel. And so I I don't think it's um, too much imagination to to assume that as Peter is recounting this story, as Mark is writing, that Peter says, Hey, 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 that moment where Jesus said that thing, he was declaring all foods to be clean. He was declaring there is no such thing as, as unclean food. I didn't get it then. But boy, let me tell you, I understand it now. He was declaring all foods to be clean. So Peter should have known that even at the, the literal basic level, he, <laughs> there was no such thing as unclean food. God was doing something new. But of course, the vision was not ultimately about food. It was about people. There was a greater purpose for the vision, and it was to prepare Peter's he needed to hear what God has made clean, do not common, do not call common. He needed to hear that three times to prepare his heart for what was about to happen. Because what he tells us in verse 11 is at the very moment that the vision was over, the three men, the Gentiles from Cornelius, came knocking on the door. Now, Peter, again, he's giving this account in detail. He wants them to be convinced this was of God. And so he includes this detail in God's providential timing. The vision was over and a knock came on the door because God was up to something. This was not just a coincidence. These three Gentiles come and Peter would not have associated with them. He would not have gone with them if it hadn't been for God's intervening and showing him this vision. At that moment, the Holy Spirit, he says, spoke to him. Verse 12 The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Before the vision, Peter would never have associated with these Gentiles, but God told him, Do not call unclean what God has made clean. And then, to just drive it in even more, the Holy Spirit himself spoke to him. In case he missed the message, go with them. And that was when Peter understood, as he said back in chapter 10, verse 28, that God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He could go even with these unclean Gentiles. So Peter went to Caesarea And we're told here in verse 12, this is the the first time we're introduced to this detail, that there were specifically six Christians from Joppa that went with Peter as he was going to the Gentiles and would preach the gospel to them. So not only did God send Peter, he sent witnesses. And two or three witnesses would have sufficed. But God sent six so that you could be convinced Certain, have absolute certainty that God was at work. This was not something Peter made up. It was not something that the Gentiles claimed. God did it, and six, seven if you count Peter, witnesses were able to testify to what they had seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. Uh, because as, we, uh, as we'll find out in, as the story uh Uh, or as we found out in the end of chapter 10, the evidence that the Holy Spirit had uh, come upon them was that they um, extolled God with their words. Well, there's another important detail that Peter includes in verse 14. He says that when the angel appeared to Cornelius, he told Cornelius that Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. This is another important detail that Peter is uh, trying to ensure that he includes because he's trying to give this account in order to convince them that this really was from God. Uh, Even the idea of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles was God's idea. It was not Peter's idea. It was God's idea. He intended for Peter to preach the gospel to these Gentiles. But, of course, the ultimate proof, as I alluded to a minute ago, comes in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Peter was preaching the gospel, and he wasn't even finished yet. He hadn't even gotten to the invitation, and the Holy Spirit fell. Before he could invite them to respond to the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Again, indicating this was God's doing. And notice that phrase, just as on us at the beginning. This is key. It is the same Holy Spirit, and he came on them in the same way as the Jews. The Gentiles didn't get a a second-rate experience with the Holy Spirit. They didn't get part of the Holy Spirit or some junior version of the filling of the Holy Spirit. They experienced the same Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews had, demonstrating that God indeed shows no partiality, that anyone, Jew or Gentile, can have the same salvation of God. So as Peter experienced these things, as he saw the Holy Spirit fall on them, heard them speaking in tongues, extolling God as the evidence that the Holy Spirit has come on them. Uh, He tells his brothers that as he saw those things, he was reminded of the words of Jesus. Uh, He quotes them right here. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke recorded those words in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 that this coming of the Holy Spirit would come to those who belong to the Lord Jesus. And what Peter realized as he saw the Holy Spirit fall even on Gentiles who believed is that this was not a promise just for Jews. This promise of the Lord in Acts 1, 4, and 5, it was for Gentiles too. Anyone from any nation who trusts in Jesus can have the same Holy Spirit, the same salvation Of God. So then, as Peter concludes this orderly account of what has happened among the Gentiles, he comes to his ultimate conclusion in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift, the Holy Spirit, to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand? in God's way. God's salvation of the Gentiles was undeniable. The Holy Spirit came on the Jews when they believed and validated their faith in Jesus. And the same Holy Spirit came in the same way on the Gentiles when they believed and validated that they too had faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, He he does make clear here, as we see in verse 17, that uh, he gave the Holy Spirit when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So this was not, um, it was not as if the Gentiles were unbelieving and then just out of nowhere the Holy Spirit uh, took control of them. Uh, The Holy Spirit came as a result of their faith. They heard the gospel and they believed the gospel and then they received the Holy Spirit. So Peter has given his orderly account. He explained to his brothers, here's what happened among the Gentiles. And this irrefutable evidence left his critics speechless. Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They were persuaded this really was of God. God really had done a work among these Gentiles. And when these Jewish background believers were convinced, their criticism turned into silence and their silence... Turned into worship because God had saved Gentile souls. They recognized that this was God's work. They even said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, these Gentiles chose to repent. They chose to turn away from sin and turn to Jesus in faith. But even that turning, even that repenting, they recognized, was from God. God granted repentance. God had done a work. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and God had granted His salvation to these people. They saw what God had done, and these critics became conformed more to the ways of God transformation takes place over the course of these verses in the hearts of people who needed to be more conformed to who God is and what God was up to, the salvation that he was working in Christ. And likewise, God wants us to see what he is doing in Christ so that he might also conform us, so that he might conform our hearts To his ways. Uh, Again, Peter had already been conformed in this way. And these Jewish background believers, his brothers and sisters, over the course of this testimony, were conformed as they were convinced of God's undeniable work. And, And for both of them, what this involved was seeing God's work in Christ, being convinced of God at work, and that changed. Their beliefs about the gospel. It changed their understanding of what God was doing. It changed their attitude toward other people, specifically Gentiles. And it changed the way that they lived their very lives. And so, in light of this passage, we have a choice. We can see what God is doing in Christ, and we can. To borrow language from verse 17, we can stand in God's way or we can see what God is doing in Christ and be conformed to God's ways. Uh, by way of application, I want us to consider four different ways that God wants to conform us according to his ways, what he is doing in christ number one if god says something is true we should give up any differing convictions if god says something is true we should give up any differing convictions these jewish background believers had convictions peter did too strong convictions and convictions that came from the bible Remember. Not man-made ideas. God-given ideas. They were convinced that they were right. Peter was so convinced that he was right that when he received a direct command from heaven, he said no to God because he was convicted about what he believed God wanted for him. What he believed was true. So let me ask you a question. Are you willing to let God prove you wrong? Are you willing to let God prove you wrong? What are you so convinced of that not even God could tell you different? Do you have values and principles? maybe even some that start with the Bible, just like these Jewish background believers and Peter himself. Do you have values and principles that you are so committed to that you would even say no to God in order to maintain those values and principles? I've heard people who love the Bible who love God's word, say things like, you know, I read this verse, and so I believe this, and I'm so convinced no one will ever be able to convince me that this is not true. Or, I I, I read the Bible, and so I came to this conclusion, and this conclusion, I am going to believe until the day I die. Um, And, you know, I think that comes from a really good intention, We want to take God's truth and stand on it, stand for it, hold fast to it, not be convinced of anything other than what God says. But can I suggest a different, a better way? I will cling to what God says until he shows me otherwise. Because sometimes we can read from the Bible, come to a conclusion, and and maybe it starts from inerrant scripture, but then we lead to this conclusion that is in need of just a little bit of revision. Or maybe we even come to a wrong conclusion, even though we had an inerrant starting place. And because of that, we can be so convinced that our conclusion is right because it came from an inerrant starting place. And we want to cling to the Bible, but if we're so unwilling to have our minds changed and our conclusions changed that not even God can prove us otherwise, then it's no longer the Bible we're clinging to. It's no longer God's Word that we're clinging to. It's our interpretation. It's our conclusion. We need to have a posture with Scripture that stands under the authority of God's Word, such that when we have Uh, a a truth that we believe that God has clearly said and we stand on it, we stand firm, we're unwilling to change because God has said it. But also, when we realize that God actually says something a little different than what we thought, that God actually says something uh, that changes what we once held to, we need to be quick to let God change our mind so that our Convictions are not based on our conclusions, but our convictions flow from God Himself. If God says something is true, we should be quick to give up any differing convictions. Second, if God shows no partiality in Christ, we should not show partiality in the church. If God shows no partiality in Christ, we should not show partiality in the church. At the moment that Peter had his light bulb moment realizing that God was the God and Savior of both Jews and Gentiles, he said back in Acts 10, 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. If God shows no partiality in Christ, then we should not show partiality in the church. When we show favoritism to some people and we overlook other people, we are living out of step with what God has accomplished in Christ. For the Jewish background believers, as they were thinking about Gentiles, this partiality had to do with ethnicity and religion and culture. Uh, But partiality takes many forms, those and more. We tend to be partial toward people like us. We tend to be partial toward People like us, people from our same race, our same culture, who speak our same language, not only English, but even the way we speak English. We tend to be partial toward people from the same class that we belong to. We tend to be partial toward people who dress like us. And we tend to neglect those who are different from us those from a different background from us, those with different interests than us, those who look different than us, people that you just kind of, I just i don't get that person. Not only that, we tend to be partial toward those with higher levels of contribution. We tend to be partial toward those who can maybe even do something for us, those with influence, those with power, Those with wealth, with status. This was the issue that James addressed in James chapter 2. If you would flip there with me. Listen to what James writes in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality. Same word. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We tend to be partial toward those with a higher level of contribution we tend to neglect those who don't have as much to offer, those who are poor, those who are not as well connected, those who have a a low contribution due to age, the very young, the very old, or those who have low contribution due to other reasons, people with health problems, people who are handicapped physically or handicapped mentally. But when we show partiality, we are letting our ideas control how we view people and treat people instead of viewing and treating people the way that God sees them in Christ. So may our hearts be conformed to how God sees those in Christ, may our eyes be transformed that we would see with God's eyes and not with the ways of the world. Uh, Number three, if God delights to grant repentance, we should celebrate repentance. If God delights to grant repentance, we should celebrate repentance. When the Jewish background believers realized that God had granted repentance, they glorified God For what he had done, they were celebrating God's work of salvation. We should never take pleasure in unrepentance or be disappointed by repentance. You can say, well, who would ever do that? Well, remember Jonah. He did not want to preach to the Assyrians He was glad that they hadn't repented because he wanted to see them get what they deserved. And when he finally did preach God's message and the the people there in Nineveh repented, Jonah was furious at God for showing them mercy. Is there anyone in your life like that? that you're kind of glad that they haven't repented because it means that they're going to get what's coming to them? Anyone in your life that you're a little disappointed if God were to show mercy to them? Or maybe not disappointed, but you don't quite celebrate as much that this person would trust in Christ as much as maybe someone else that you really wanted to see repent. Well, God wants to conform our hearts to his heart. His heart, according to 2 Peter 3.9, is that he is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God wants wants us to see that he is granting repentance in Christ, and every time he does that, he wants us to celebrate what he is doing. He wants to conform our hearts to His. And if we have hearts that are conformed to His, what that's going to look like is what Paul writes about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 24 through 26. Uh, Dalen preached on this a few weeks ago. Um, you, can, you can go back and, and listen to that uh, for a full uh, exposition of that passage. But what it looks like to have a heart that is, shaped by God and His granting of repentance and our celebrating of repentance is that we're kind to everyone. If we have a heart that wants to see people repent, wants God to grant repentance, wants God to be the God of salvation for all people, anyone who comes to Him, we will patiently endure evil because God may perhaps grant them repentance. The way that you speak to your enemies shows whether or not you would celebrate their repentance. The way you, your heart is toward those who disagree with you about. Politics, theology, morals, lifestyle, the way you disagree with them and the way your heart is toward them, whether or not you're kind to them, whether or not you patiently endure evil, it shows whether or not you want to see them repent. If God delights to grant repentance, we should celebrate Repentance, desire it, pray for it, seek it out, and be uh, rejoicing, exulting in God when he finally does grant repentance. Lastly, if God is spreading his gospel to the nations, we should conform our lives to his mission. If God is spreading his gospel to the nations, we should conform our lives to his mission. However much our lives are already conformed to his mission, they could be more conformed. I mean, just think about Peter. Consider his life before he encountered Cornelius. Is there anyone on planet Earth that we would have said was more aligned to God's mission than Peter? I mean, this is the guy who stood up at Pentecost and preached and 5,000 people got saved. Uh, There at the beautiful gate, after the uh, the lame man was healed, he preached the gospel, uh, and another 5,000 people were saved. He's going around the region. He's going even to Samaria. He's going and spreading the gospel. He's checking in on churches. He's about the mission of God. He's dedicated his life to the mission of God. But what we learn in Acts 10 and 11 is Peter needed to be more conformed to the mission of God because Peter believed the gospel was just for Jews or maybe Samaritans. And he needed to be conformed to what God was doing in Christ. That in Christ, he was saving people from every nation. He was tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that stood between Jews and Gentiles and making all who trust in Christ one. And so he needed to not just align his life around getting the gospel to Jews, he needed to reorient his life and organize it around getting the gospel to all nations. If that was true for Peter, how much more is it true for us that we need to conform our lives and align it to his mission, what God is doing in Christ, in the world? Are we organizing our lives around God's mission? I need to ask myself that question and answer it. You need to ask yourself that question. Are our schedules conformed to God's priorities? Do we spend our time and spend our effort and spend our money building our kingdom but we want to reign over or God's kingdom are we devoted to what God is doing in Christ or are we devoted to giving our lives to the American dream if God is spreading his gospel to the nations if this is what he is doing in Christ, we should conform our lives to his mission, reorient ourselves around what he is doing, that he might use us as his instruments to carry his name, that he might use us in our efforts, in our time, in our resources, so that we can be instruments in his hands as he accomplishes salvation among all nations. Uh, This is a a thrilling and exciting thing that God is up to in the world. It is something that has eternal consequences. It has eternal ramifications of joy and celebration for all the redeemed of the Lord that will be around the throne from every nation and tribe and tongue. Is what we live for so often even close to comparing to that? It's what we give our time to, our money to, our effort to, the the values we espouse, the philosophies we have, does it have that kind of lasting joy attached to it, celebrating the Lamb who was slain to redeem for God a people from every tribe, a nation, and tongue? May we conform our lives to that which brings God eternal glory. May we conform these short, so short, fleeting lives that we have to that which leads to the eternal joy of people from all nations. So as we conclude, I want you to think back to where we started. Are you building your life your way and hoping it fits with God? Or are you letting God determine how you're shaped? Are you letting what God is doing in Christ shape your life such that it is conformed to his ways? God, again, wants to conform us to ourselves. He wants our beliefs to be conformed to his truth. He wants our actions to be conformed to his ways. He wants our attitudes to be conformed to his heart. He wants our entire lives to be conformed to his priorities. So may we see what God is up to in Christ. This God of salvation that grants salvation to anyone from any nation who repents and believes the gospel. May we see what he is doing in Christ and may God conform our hearts more and more to his ways. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the same Holy Spirit that fell on the Jews at the day of Pentecost, the same Holy Spirit that fell on the Gentiles there at Cornelius' house, that that same Holy Spirit, God Himself, who is in every one of us who is trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that He would open our eyes to see the glorious things that You have done in Christ and that You are continuing to do in Christ as You are working by the power of the Gospel. I pray that the Holy Spirit would, by the very divine power that He possesses, would conform our hearts more to Your ways. That He would shape us, bend us, smooth our rough edges. Lord, I pray that He would conform us to Your ways. or that more and more you would accomplish your purpose for us of conforming us to the image of your Son who is the exact imprint of your nature. Lord, work in our hearts. Open our eyes. Grant us repentance. May we bow to the Lordship of Christ and live for the glory of his name. It's in his name we pray, amen.